Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both. It be one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as best I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had really warned them about the same. Robert Frost, in his work, The Road Not Taken, sets up this idea that he has a choice. He's walking along this wooded area down a trail, and he comes to a fork in the road, and what he presents for the reader is the idea that he has a choice to make, and as he looks at both of these paths, both of them are fairly alluring. Both of them have very similar traits or aspects, and one can make a choice that may really determine the outcome of their journey. I think about that in parallel to the life of everyone who lives here below, and that each choice affects the next. Everything that we do leads on to another set of decisions that we have to make. In fact, God's people are given with choices daily. I'm reminded of Deuteronomy chapter 30, really, where he says, Behold, I set before thee this day life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. And so there is that injunction by Moses enjoined upon the children of Israel that a choice has to be made. And if you want to succeed in life, choose life. That is, follow after God. As Robert Frost constructs this idea, he doesn't really place any moral weight or gravity upon the decision of the traveler there who is looking at these choices Because from his perspective, there is really no way to know where each one of those paths will lead. And so what he has to do is make the best decision that he can with the information that he's given, hence the explanation of the paths as he's beholding them. He's looking at them. One of them seems to have had a grassy track through it, and you might be able to walk there. The other one seems to have a little bit of undergrowth. But really, as he says in verse 2, they look about the same. I think about the life of a Christian. You and I have choices every day to make. And I want us to consider the life that we live and the roads that we are walking. Life is construed multiple times as an individual walking a road. Jesus would even use this same parallel in His discussion on salvation. He says, broad is the way, and straight is the gate that leads to destruction, or wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. But straight is the way, and narrow the gate that leads to life, and few there be that find it. And He's talking about the idea that these paths that we walk might be precipitous, might be difficult, but ultimately lead to heaven, whereas those easy paths, those easy roads might lead to a place that we don't want to ever be. I'm reminded of when I was growing up, my mom and dad would always tell me, well, if everyone else did it, would you? You might think about that in regards to these roads that people are walking. If everyone else is doing it, does that mean that is the right thing to pursue? I really want us to look at four roads that are found in the New Testament text this morning and ask the question, are you walking this road? 
The first one is that of the road to Emmaus, and it's found in Luke chapter 24. As those men are leaving Jerusalem and headed to Emmaus, they're talking amongst themselves about the things that had transpired in Jerusalem the previous few days. Ultimately, the crucifixion of the Christ. The fact that we were sure this was Jesus. This was our guy. And then a stranger comes and joins himself to their party, and as they walk, he begins to instruct them out of the Old Testament. And the Bible there says in verse 32, And they said one to another, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked with us by the way, and while He opened unto us the Scriptures? One of the greatest stories, I think, in the New Testament is the fact that Jesus preaches the Gospel to these men. What greater preacher could there have ever been to talk about the benefit of being a child of God than the Son of God Himself as He's walking with them on the road and expounding unto them the Scriptures. This is the idea that ought to embody every child of God and that we ought to be traveling the road to Emmaus that is learning about the Christ. How many of you like to learn? I've heard it said learning's hard. Uh, My children are saying that right now. They're struggling with developing maybe the ability to uh, factor some of these math equations and maybe some of the spelling words are a little bit more advanced than what they had been used to. Learning is challenging. I get it. But look at these men and look at what statement is made in our, did not our hearts burn within us? How many of you have opened the Word of God and began to read And all of a sudden, as you're reading through, you feel real, sincere application. You realize that the Word of God is addressing and affecting you. And you well up with that burning sensation. I don't mean heartburn. My uncle, when he was little, heard the preacher say they had that burning in their heart. And immediately he stood up in the congregation and yelled, heartburn. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the desire to grow and learn about God and what it does for us in our life. Knowledge helps us understand more and more who God is. And here, when we understand who Christ is and what He really did for us, what effect will that have on us in our life? I love the fact that He opened up to those men there on the road, Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament... How many of you love studying through the minor prophets? Raise your hand. I see just like two or three hands. No, four hands. Not many people like opening up the minor prophets because they're technical. I get it. They're difficult. They're dealing with prophecy sometimes. But do you realize some of the great examples that we have of the way God deals with His people are found in those 12 books? Some of the great sayings and verses that we have that are quoted all throughout the New Testament are found in those 12 books. We think about what the Bible can do for us when we open up God's Word and begin to learn about the Christ. As we talked a couple of weeks ago, what does the whole Bible revolve around? It revolves around Christ. We might look at Revelation 19.10. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, because these texts revolve around Jesus the Christ, we have an obligation to learn and to grow. It's imperative that we all travel this road. In Acts 2 and verse 36, 
Peter would there say, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus, who you crucified, both Lord and Christ. We talked this morning in our Bible class a little bit about confession, but that is not confession of sin, but confession of who Jesus is. That is the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the One who would redeem us. So many people in this world do not know Jesus. They don't have the hope and the consolation that comes from having that relationship with Him. Think about Paul's remarks in Philippians chapter 4, the peace of God which passes all understanding shall guard or keep or preserve your hearts and minds. Where? In Christ Jesus. Why do we learn about Jesus? Why do we come and have Bible studies? Why do we open up the book? Because we need to be a prepared people. We need to be able to go out and to give a defense for why we believe what we believe. But we also need to shore up our own selves and our own faith and our own confidence in God and be able to stand flat-footed when we talk about the truth as it is in Christ. Philip preached in uh, Christ in Acts 8 and verse 35. The Bible there says, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same Scripture and preached unto him Jesus. I I love this passage because the man is reading Isaiah 53. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. For he has no form or comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. All we like sheep have gone astray. As he's reading through this, what happens to him. And the man asks, of who is the prophet referring to, of himself or another? And Philip has the opportunity here to open up at that very passage and teach him about Jesus. My brother worked in a coffee shop when he was attending Freed Hardeman. He was a Bible major at Freed Hardeman several years back. And uh, as he was working there, he took a break and sat down at one of the tables and looked over and there was a, an individual in the coffee shop reading out of Isaiah 53. And my brother looked over at him and said, what are you reading? Do you understand what you're reading? Because he saw that it was open to Isaiah, but he didn't know. And the guy looked right at him and he said, I'm reading out of Isaiah 53, but I'm really struggling with it. And my brother got really excited because he got to be like Philip in that moment to go over and sit down with him and preach to him Jesus. But brethren, we can't do that if we don't know Jesus, if we don't know the Word. And so these men on the road to Emmaus, they're learning about who Jesus is and why He had to fulfill the Scripture and why Jesus had to die on the cross. We must learn and know the Christ for the reason that we can preach Him. I think about Paul's remarks in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There is that imperative, that injunction by Paul there that we ought to be people of the book. When I was in uh, Iraq, we had an interpreter. And I, I like to sit down and visit with him from time to time about religion because he was... Uh, professing uh, Muslim. And we talked about Christianity in juxtaposition of Islam. And as we began to discuss and talk about things, he said, you know, we call Christians people of the book. 
And I thought that was really intriguing because I look around today and I don't see really any Christians or not many who know the book. But the idea that you and I live by the Word of God and that is our guide. The psalmist would say in Psalm 119, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But how many people know the lamp or have tended it enough to let it be a light? Paul wants us to study the Word of God so that we can be approved unto Him. A workman that needs not to be ashamed. I don't know, I think about that passage and I think about instances in my life when I've been challenged by others with false views. And that idea of being ashamed immediately comes to mind because when I can't find the verse and I can't show them from the biblical text where it says what I know the Bible to say, it can be disheartening. What do you do immediately after that? You go home and look it up. Get on eSword and type it in or pull up Google and consult the oracle and see where it said that, right? But in that moment when we forget, you see, this is what we're preparing for is to be able to give a defense. To have the Word of God within us I think about Romans chapter 10 when Paul reiterates what is said in Deuteronomy. The Word of God is not far from you. That we should go to heaven and bring it down for us. That someone should go into the abyss and bring it up for us. But the Word of God is near unto you in your hearts. We have the Word of God, but are we putting it in the heart? John 17 and verse 3, Jesus would say, and this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent Do we really know who Jesus is and what He stands for, what He came for? See, are we traveling the road to Emmaus? That is, the road to learning about the Christ. Think about the next road that might come along. And that is the road to Damascus. We find this road in Acts chapter 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. And Paul really recounting his conversion, or at least Luke writing the conversion account of Paul in Acts 9, and then Paul standing before Agrippa and retelling his conversion account. But what do we see happen with Paul? We know that that Saul is an ardent supporter of Jewish nationalism. We know that Paul is an ardent uh, supporter and defender of Judaism as it was at the time and a vast enemy to Christians everywhere. And what happens, Paul is on his way to Damascus with letters to capture Christians, that is Jewish Christians, and bring them back and have them stand trial because he's heard that this blasphemy has made it all the way to Damascus and the communities there. And Paul on his way to Damascus is struck down by a light. Jesus appears to him. And Jesus asked him the question, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And Saul responds, Who art thou, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you persecutest. What happens? We see a shift in Saul's attitude and complete demeanor. And what does he do? He's told to arise and go into Damascus, find a man named Oh, it starts with an A. I, can't re- it, I lost it just now. Ananias, thank you, brother. Sometimes that happens. The train gets rolling and I can't catch up. I fell off that boxcar. Um, Ananias tells him, why are you tearing? He says, you'll find a man named Ananias there. 
And he will tell you words whereby you must be saved. So what happens? He's blind. He's struck blind. He goes into the city. And he finds this man, Ananias. Ananias comes to him. Ananias has his own dialogue with God. Ananias comes to Saul at the time and asks him the question, now why tarriest thou? Saul, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now as Paul recounts his conversion, I love the statement that he makes in chapter 26, in verse 19. And telling Agrippa, whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Are we traveling the road to faithful obedience? I don't know how many of us need to be struck down by the Lord Himself with blindness before we'll realize that we need to be obedient to the God of heaven. But we need to be obedient to the God of heaven. Paul says, I wasn't disobedient to the things that I knew and that I saw to what Jesus had said. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But what about the revealed Word? Can we be disobedient to that? How much credence do we give God's Word and what He says here? And how willing are we to push the envelope, so to speak, to get our own way? Is this the same as the Lord Himself revealing Himself to us? I would admit or submit to you this morning that this is just as powerful as the Lord appearing in person telling us what to do. We have God's revealed Word for us by the Holy Spirit that governs and guides our life. And yet how many people refuse to be obedient to the Word of God as it is in truth? You see, this also applies to every facet of our life. I think about Saul of Tarsus and learning this lesson through Revelation. And and I think sometimes, man, maybe if Jesus would just appear to me like that, I would be as faithful. Have you ever thought that to yourself? If I could just behold God the way Isaiah did. Maybe if I could have the relationship that Moses did. But then I go back and I look at those men. We look at Moses. Was Moses completely faithful to God in all that he did? No, he let his anger get the best of him when God told him to speak to the rock. He struck it, thus sealing his fate and not being able to go into Canaan. I look at other figures of the past who had a relationship with God, even a revealed relationship by God to them, and they still didn't make all of the right choices. The revelation of God in His Word should be enough to encourage us to fidelity and obedience to Him. Christians must travel the road of obedience and do all that we are commanded. I think about 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, where Paul says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. Go back a little bit. He says, And seeing it is a righteous thing for God to recompense trouble to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven in flaming fire with His mighty angels. Now note what he says, Taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the fact that He takes vengeance on the ignorant. You see, we have a responsibility to know who God is, and then to be obedient to Him. And this text sums up both of them very succinctly. I think about Jesus as the great example, but found in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, though He were a son, what did He learn? The Hebrews writer tells us, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who 
obey Him. See, we have an obligation to God to be obedient to Him in all it is that we do. 1 Peter 1 and verse 22. Peter would say, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and the unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Again, there is that idea of full, complete, whole obedience to God. The question I have in my mind is when you became a Christian, was your expectation that God would become your servant or that you would become His? Let me say that again. When you became a Christian, did you have the expectation that God would become your servant or that you would become His? Because oftentimes those two are flipped. And many people come into Christianity and think, now God's going to do everything for me. Rather, I'm going to live my life in complete servitude to God. I think about the Christ. Though He were a son, having all claim to divinity, yet He did what? He learned obedience by the things which He suffered. Jesus the Christ, willing to subject Himself to God the Father. And then some people who have the arrogance and say that I don't have to do what God says. We need to be traveling the road to faithful obedience. Look at Luke 6 and verse 46. Jesus, in response to the question that is asked, He says, why call you me Lord, Lord? Why are you acknowledging me as Lord, as Master, as Teacher, and do not the things that I say? And we might be able to ask that question to all of God's people at any given time. Why are we professing Christ as Lord when our life is in shambles? When we refuse to follow God's edicts for conduct in our life? What kind of hypocrisy is that? You see, obedience matters in the life of a child of God. Paul would say in Romans 6 and verse 7, But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin and have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine delivered unto you. Think about that. You were the servants of sin, and when we became a Christian, we obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. And then, all of a sudden, we quit being obedient once we received the blessing of salvation? No, not in any way. We continue in our service to God even more zealous than we were before. Knowing whose we are and who we serve, not who serves us. Thirdly, there is the road to Jericho. Think about this road because this road really, people might say, is where application really kind of is meted out. Jesus the Christ is asked the question. He is approached by a lawyer and says, Lord, who is my neighbor? And wanting to get out of a command that Jesus has already given, he makes the statement, who is my neighbor? Can you qualify this statement so that we can exclude those that we want to exclude? Looking for self-justification, Jesus in Luke chapter 10 begins to tell them the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, one that would cut to the heart any Jew as they heard it because of their contempt for Samaritans on the whole. But we look at the way the story is fashioned. This man goes up, or is headed down to Jericho, we might say, and he falls among thieves and is beaten and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. And then we have these individuals come along. We have 
a priest come along and see him, and not wanting to be ceremonially defiled, he passes around him. Another person comes along, sees him dead in the ditch, and does the same, leaves on. But what does a Samaritan do? A Samaritan passing by sees this man in the ditch, goes over, picks him up, tends his wounds, takes him to the inn, gives the innkeeper the money, and says, if there's anything else that he needs that's not paid, I'll pay for it when I return. And Jesus asked the question, who is neighbor to this man? Who is neighbor to this man? It was the Samaritan, clearly. It was the person that tended the person. It was the person that took care of the other one. This is the road to compassionate service. Are we traveling the road to Jericho in that are we looking at the needs and the afflictions of others and tending to them with an earnest love for them. I think about Philippians 2 and verse 4. Paul would say, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. He's not talking about being a gossip, prying into other people's business. What he's talking about is the idea that we have a sincere concern for the lives of one another. We aren't so self-absorbed that we don't think about the lives of others. We aren't so self-absorbed that we refuse to go and help the needs of others. Tara and I have been the recipient of your generosity over these past couple of weeks with her broken foot. Uh, Words cannot express to you the love that I feel for y'all, for y'all taking care of us in that way. I'm grateful for it. But that's exactly what Paul is talking about. The ability to see the needs of others as they are, and then have the idea that we're going to serve and fill, we're going to stand in the gap, as it were, and help them with those difficulties. The Scripture tells us that the Samaritans saw the man who had been beaten, robbed, stripped, left half dead on the side of the road. And I love the verse there in verse 33. It says he had compassion on him. Compassion. It's the same statement made of Jesus As the narration goes in John, he looked around and saw the multitudes and was moved with compassion on them, for they were as sheep having no shepherd. Where is the compassionate heart that looks around us and seeks to find ways to help, to mend the hurting soul, maybe to help the physical frailties of this life, maybe to reach out in whatever way that we can for each other. You see, here, embodied in this Samaritan is a compassion, an agape love that we see that transcends personal inconvenience. I think about how many people let the idea of convenience get in their way of service. Well, if it's convenient, I will stop by because I'm headed out that way anyway. But if it's not convenient, I'm not going to do it. If it's inconvenient, I'll maybe call somebody else who might live a little bit closer to them. Did this Samaritan let the inconvenience of him having to take him back to an inn, admit him, cost him money, keep him from doing what he knew was the right thing to do? Not at all. The compassion was the overarching theme in this man. And it ought to be so with us. Not personal inconvenience. We can't make our decisions on whom we serve and don't serve, who we help and refuse to help based on whether or not it's convenient for me. I'm glad our Lord didn't do that. Was it convenient for Him to go to the cross? Not at all. 
Every one of us would say that that would be an inconvenient, albeit highly understated word, for what the Lord did. But He did it anyway. But yet how many of us, well, it might be an extra gallon of gas. Big deal. $1.97. We're going to let $1.97 stand in the way of us helping out our brethren. Guess what? People do. People do. Personal inconvenience should not be the standard by which we measure the way we help and have compassion on one another. Reminded of the book of Leviticus and ceremonial uncleanliness, how inconvenient it was for them to endure those days of purification. And this Levite who's passing along is thinking to himself, well, if I go and touch a dead body or get near a dead body, that's seven days that I'm going to be out of, well, 14 days of quarantine, right? Seven days that I'm going to be unable to attend to the things of the temple. That's seven days unclean. Then I've got to go through the purification rituals again. I don't want to do that, so it's better just to leave it alone and I'll let somebody else deal with it. But look, I think about the Samaritan. His love also transcended racial prejudice. Transcended that physical divide that divided the Jew from the Samaritan. If any of us, I will say this, if any of us have a prejudiced bone in our body, we need to repent immediately. There's no place for hatred in the Lord's church. I don't care what side of the fence you're on. There is no place for prejudice in the Lord's church. And if that keeps us from serving one another, I won't go any further, but if that keeps you from serving one of your brothers or sisters, you really need to do some self-reflection. And then transcended provisions for the present. This man had money, probably going in a certain direction, going a certain place, had his travel all squared away. And now he's got to change his entire route in order to accommodate this injured person. This unconscious person, this beaten person. Now he's got to change everything about his plans. And now he has to shell out more money than what he originally intended. I think about Psalm 15 where the statement is there made by the psalmist, he that swears to his own hurt and changes not. That idea who has the integrity to do what's right even when it's going to cost them something. Brethren, that's the compassion that we ought to have for one another. Do we convey this same attitude in our interactions toward one another? Because God's people must be a compassionate people. Acts 11 and verse 29 The Bible there says, Then the disciples, every man determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. The disciples there, they were poor. But what are they doing? They wanted to have the opportunity to reach out and to serve and to assist. And so, them being poor, bring all of their money together so that they can be a part of that gift that's offered to the church in Judea. Galatians 6, 9 and 10, Paul would tell us emphatically, Let us not grow weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially those that are of the household of faith. I think about that in the emphatic statement by Paul. We have the opportunity to do good, to be a light in this world, as Jesus says in Matthew 5. But are we taking full advantage of those opportunities as they come our way? Or are we letting personal inconvenience keep us from doing those things that we know ought to be done? 
James 1 and verse 27, James would say, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. What does pure religion look like? It looks like service. It looks like obedience. It looks like compassion. Acts 10 and verse 38. Think about Jesus the Christ as Peter describes Him to the household of Cornelius. And one of the statements that I've never forgotten is what he says there about Jesus. He says He went about doing good. Brethren, if we want to be Christ-like, if we want to emulate Jesus, we need to be people who go about doing good regardless of what it may cost us. But then ultimately there is the road Calvary. This is the road of endurance, suffering, and sacrifice. Of course, it's found in all three, all four gospel accounts. We think about Jesus the Christ suffering the untold agonies of the crucifixion for you and for me, putting us first so that we could have a restoration with God. Again, we could have the forgiveness of sins that we love and that we're thankful for, that provides us the avenue of approach to a holy God. I think about Hebrews 12, 1. He says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and run with patience or endurance, as it might be translated in your Bibles, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who endured such contradiction of sinners, lest you grow weary and faint in your minds. He says, you've not yet resisted on blood striving against sin. But what did Jesus do? The Hebrews writer tells us that He endured that contradiction of sinners. He suffered for you and for me. And guess what? Jesus says, a servant is not above his master. If he suffered, we will too. We're going to endure temptation. As the Hebrews writer is writing in Hebrews 12, he's telling them, at this point, you've not yet resisted unto blood. It doesn't mean it isn't coming. And I can't promise you that we won't endure this kind of persecution. But can we stand up under it? Do we have the confidence in God to be able to endure these kinds of things? Philippians 2, 6, we think about Jesus being in the form of God, but ultimately doing what? Taking upon Himself the form of a servant as being found in fashion as a man. And then enduring the agony of the cross so that you and I could be redeemed back to God. He would say in John 15 and verse 13, Greater love hath no man than this, and a man laid down his life for a friend. And Jesus laid down His life for you and me. The greatest sacrifice ever known. You see, we must be willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. Peter would tell us in 1 Peter 4 and verse 16, If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Now, if he suffers as an evildoer, what is he deserves it. But if he suffers as a Christian, this is thankworthy if a man toward God endures persecution. Think about Peter's statement there. Yes, we're going to suffer, but can we stand up under it? Paul would give us this promise in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Write it down. 
If you are exhibiting the attributes of Christ, people will not like it. And you will endure suffering at their hands. Even Revelation writer tells us in Revelation 2 and verse 10, John, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. He doesn't say fear none of those things which you might suffer, but the indicative mood, it will happen. Fear none of those things that you will suffer. I think about that in our lives. We will go through difficult and trying times, but we must endure. Again, Hebrews 12, he says, run with endurance the race that is set before us. Continue on. Be steadfast, unmovable. Paul would tell us, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In Mark 13, 13, he that shall endure until the end, the same shall be saved. And then ultimately, we must be willing to sacrifice. Sacrifice of our time, our love for God, our means, those kinds of things, in order to serve Him wholeheartedly. Think about the widow who gave all that she had as they're standing back observing the giving that is going on in the temple. Jesus makes the statement, even though it was small, she gave more than all of these others because she gave her all. When we give her all to God, what does that look like? And both that morning equally lay and leaves no step had trodden back. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing the way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wooden eye. I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I submit to you this morning that the road less traveled is the road of the Christian walk. Which each in its time and its course will be found to be a road to Emmaus, a road to Jericho, a road to Damascus, and a road to Calvary. All of them summed up on the walk that we call the Christian life. What choice lays before you this morning? Are we choosing to follow the road to heaven that we know leads on to eternity? Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Or have we chosen the road of the world that leads to nothing but sorrow and ultimately death, an eternity of separation from the God of heaven? See, as we follow the road of the Christian walk, we will grow in our relationship with God. We will grow in our knowledge of the Christ. We will grow in our compassionate service to others and our obedience to the God of heaven. And ultimately, we'll develop the attitude and the mindset of sacrificial love and service. Is that the road that we've chosen to follow? If so... I'm glad to hear it. If you've not chosen to follow that road, I want to ask you the question this morning, why not? Your life will be unalterably different if you choose the Christian walk. Respond to the Gospel. Put Christ on an immersion and become God's child this morning. If you realize that you've wandered away from the path that leads to eternal life, you've left that road, then I want to encourage you this morning to come back to the path that leads to heaven. Get back on the road again. Get out of the ditch. 
and start walking toward heaven again. If you have any need this morning, once you come as we stand and sing our song of encouragement.